All right, all right. Come on in, have a seat. We're so thankful that you're here. Welcome to the Church of Christ at Mission Viejo as we continue our series of lessons looking at prayer uh, that we've entitled The Circle Maker. Uh, this is week two, and I pray that it'll be a blessing to your life. I, too, want to add my uh, thanks to Michael Wexler for all that he's done, uh, not just last summer, but especially this one. He's made a transition for, I know, Nick and Taylor so much easier, and stepping in, just done an incredible job. Thank you, Michael. I, I always knew that you had a heart of a servant, and now I see that in full display, and it's a privilege and a blessing to, to know you and to call you my friend, and I know God has big things in store for your life. Uh, in the not-too-distant future. So God bless you and be with you as you go back to school. And I know there are others who are returning to school to different locations all over this country, and we don't certainly want to pray God's blessing around all of that. As we talk about prayer and cloudy with a chance of quail, if you have your Bibles, you're going to be, want to be opening to Numbers chapter 11 because that's where we're going to go in just a minute. Numbers chapter 11. And if you remember last week, we made the story, told the story of a guy named Honi or Honai, the circle maker is who he's referred to, a true story that happens between the testaments of a guy who prays this big, audacious, bold prayer. But I have to tell you that before the first raindrop fell, Honai must have felt a little bit foolish because standing inside a circle that you have drawn and demanding rain from God is a very very risky proposition, to put it mildly. And vowing that you won't leave that circle until it rains, well, that's even riskier. You see, Honai, when he drew the circle, didn't draw a semicircle. No, he drew a complete circle. There was no escape clause for him. There was no expiration date for him. Honi backed himself into a circle, and the only way out of this circle was through a miracle of God. And I need you to know that if we are going to become people with bold prayers, if we're going to draw circles around our biggest dreams, that it's often going to look like an exercise in foolishness. I mean, marching around a building, that can look a little foolish. Let's just be honest. It can be, seem a little silly. But faith, listen, faith is the willingness to look a little foolish if we need to be. Faith is the willingness to look a little foolish. And I want you to think about that with me for a second. Because all through Scripture, we see people that looked downright foolish at the moment. Noah had to have looked like a complete idiot building a boat in the middle of the desert when there hadn't even been rain that we know of in all of Scripture. He had to have looked like a raving lunatic. The Israelites, marching around Jericho, blowing trumpets and yelling, had to look a little silly to the people that they were marching around. A shepherd boy running at a giant with a sling and a stone had to have looked a little bit silly, had to have looked a little foolish. The wise men tracking a star to Timbuktu had to have looked a little crazy. Peter had to have looked like a crazy person stepping off the edge of the boat onto the water when he walked on the water to Jesus. And Jesus looked foolish wearing a crown of thorns. But the results of every single one of those things speak for themselves, do they not? Noah was saved with his family from the flood. The walls came tumbling down. David defeats Goliath. The wise men discover the Messiah. Peter walks on water and Jesus is crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. Foolishness. Foolishness is a feeling that Moses knew very, very well. He had to feel foolish going before Pharaoh and demanding let my people go. He had to have felt very foolish doing that. 
he must have felt foolish raising his staff over an ocean, over the Red Sea. And he most certainly felt foolish promising meat to eat for the entire nation of Israel in the middle of the wilderness. But it was his willingness to look foolish, to circle the promises of God anyway, that resulted in amazing miracles. Because that's what it's all about. Drawing these circles will often look foolish. It'll make us feel foolish. And the bigger the circle you draw, the more foolish you're going to feel. But if you aren't willing to step out on the boat, Ortberg says you'll never walk on water. And if you're not willing to circle the city, the wall will never fall. And if you're not willing to follow the star, you may miss out on the greatest adventure of your entire life. So in order to experience a movement of God, you're going to have to take a risk. You're going to have to put yourself out there. And one of the most difficult types of risk to take is risking your reputation. The greatest chapters in history always begin with risk. Always. And the same is true with the chapters of your life where you find yourself right now. If you are unwilling to risk your reputation, you'll never build the boat like Noah did. You'll never get out of the boat like Peter did. And listen, I want you to get this. This is so important. You cannot build God's reputation if you aren't willing to risk yours. Did you hear what I said to you? You cannot build God's reputation if you're not willing to risk yours. There comes a moment when you need to make the call or make the mood because circle makers are risk takers. And Moses learned the lesson well. If you don't take the risk, you very well may forfeit the miracle. Let's go to Numbers chapter 11. I want you to notice verses 1 through 6 with me. A little bit of context before we read this, this passage of Scripture. After 400 years of slavery, God has delivered Israel out of Egypt. But it's much harder getting Egypt out of the Israelites than it is getting the Israelites out of Egypt. And despite their memory of slavery and miracles of deliverance, the Israels want to go, Israelites want to go running back to Egypt. And we read that here in verses 1 through 6. So listen with me. Numbers chapter 11. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. Oh, interesting. And when the Lord heard it, his consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. And so the name of the place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Listen to this next verse. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. <laughs> the Israelites are complaining. I know, that's shocking, isn't it? Instead of manna, they wanted meat to eat. And as a hardcore carnivore, I, I certainly can understand uh, their desire for, for meat. I get that. But I, I talk about selective memory in those first six verses. Goodness gracious. The Israelites longingly remember the fish that they ate for free, but they forgot that the fact that the food was free is because they weren't. They were slaves in, in Egypt. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt. They weren't just slaves. If you know the history, you know that they were victims of genocide in Egypt. 
Yet they missed the meat on the menu. And isn't it just a little bit ironic that the Israelites were complaining about one miracle while asking for another one? Here they are enjoying manna from heaven, which I'm very good authority. I think is Krispy Kreme donuts. I think it was the first, the first Krispy. That's what I think that might be what it was. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's true, but I, very good authority told me that's what it was. But so here they are enjoying this amazing miracle from God on a daily basis, and yet they're missing that because uh, of this this meat that they're longing for amazing. And I wonder, how many times are we just like them? How many times are there miracles all around us, and yet it is so easy to find ourselves something to complain about in the midst of all of the things that God is doing around us? The simple act of reading your Bible. Think about this for a minute. The simple act of reading your Bible it involves millions and millions of impulses firing across billions of synapses in your body. When you're reading your Bible, your heart goes about its business, circulating five quarts of blood through 100,000 miles of veins and arteries and capillaries in your body. And it's amazing that you can even concentrate, given the fact that you're on a planet that is traveling 67,000 miles per hour through space while spinning around its axis at a speed of 1,000 miles per hour. But we take those miracles for granted. The miracles that happen every single day, we, we, just, we just don't even think about. But despite their incessant complaining, God patiently responds to their food tantrum with one of the most amazingly crazy promises in all of Scripture. He doesn't just promise a one-course meal of meat. God promises meat for a month. And Moses, as he's sitting here listening to God say this, is beside himself, he's thinking, what in the world? How is this going to happen? Listen, chapter 11, verse 21. Moses says, The people among who I am number 600,000 on foot, and you said I will give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. He's starting to do the math in his head. This isn't working out. I don't know how this is going to happen. Are we going to kill every single animal that we have? Verse 22, shall the, shall the flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? It doesn't add up. He's thinking of any conceivable way that God could fulfill this promise, and he can't think of a single one. He doesn't see how God can fulfill this impossible promise for even one day, let alone for a month. You ever been there? You know God wants you to take the job that pays less, but it doesn't add up. You know God wants you to go on the mission trip, but it doesn't add up. You know God wants you to get married or go to grad school or adopt, but it doesn't add up. This predicament that Moses finds himself in reminds me not only of the experiences that each of us have at some point or another in our life, but it reminds me of another food miracle that happened in the Judean wilderness about 1,500 years after this. A crowd of 5,000 is listening to Jesus speak, and he doesn't want to send them away hungry, but there aren't any eating establish anywhere, establishments anywhere. Taco Bell's not there. And so a nameless boy offers his brown bag lunch of five loaves and two fish to Jesus. And it's a nice gesture, but Andrew verbalizes what everybody else is thinking at that very moment. Oh, what in the world? What good is this among so many? 
Like Moses here in Numbers 11, he's doing the math and it just doesn't add up. In terms of addition, we know that 5 plus 2 equals 7, right? I mean, put it on the screen, that makes perfect sense to us. But here's the thing, if you add God into the equation, 5 plus 2 equals 5,000. Because that's exactly what he did. He fed 5,000 people with that kid's five loaves and two fishes. And not only does God multiply the meal so that it feeds 5,000, they actually end up with more leftovers than they have food to begin with. Only in God's economy does something like that happen. The 12 baskets of remainders means the most accurate equation for this when you add God to it is 5 plus 2 equals 5,000 with a remainder of 12. <laughs> I'm no mathematician, that's why I preach, but man, that's pretty cool, isn't it? If you put what little you have, listen to me now, if you put what little you have in your hand into the hand of God, it won't just add up, God will make it multiply. God will make it multiply. And let me show you this multiplication in something that I lovingly refer to as quail-mageddon. I didn't come up with that, but I thought it was really neat. Quail Mageddon. Listen to this. Numbers chapter 11, verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side, and a day's journey on the other side, around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day, and all night, and all the next day, and gathered quail. And those who gathered least gathered ten omers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. The Israelites were parked in the wilderness of Paran. It's a region about 50 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea and 50 miles southwest of the Dead Sea. And there's significance to that because quail tend to live by the water and they don't fly long distances. And so if it's not for a supernatural west wind that God brings, they would have never made it this far inland. So, first and foremost, this is a meteorological miracle. And it's not just a miraculous west wind. The cloud bursts and rained quail from the sky. Now, get this. Based on the Hebrew system of measurement, a day's walk was about 15 miles in any direction. And so if you square the radius and multiply by pi, again, I'm not a mathematician, we're talking about an area that was almost 700 square miles. Think about this. Orange County, all of Orange County is 791 square miles. Th think about this with me for just a second. Each Israelite gathered so much stuff, it's not even funny. Can you imagine the scene of these birds flying into this camp? It was like a bird blizzard. I, I mean, you want to see a solar eclipse tomorrow? This would have been the, the uh, first one. I mean, these birds must have blocked out the sun. And for the rest of their lives, when they eyewitnesses to this event closed their eyes at night, they probably counted quail. And once the quail stopped following the Israel, falling, the Israelites started gathering. And each Israelite gathered no more than 10 omers. 10 omers multiplied by 600,000 men, not to mention women and children. 600,000 men equals 6 million omers at a minimum. 
Now you say, okay, well, what in the world is an omer? <laughs> Stay with me. An omer equates to roughly 200 liters. And assuming that quail were an average size, listen to this now, it rained somewhere in the neighborhood of 105 million quail. 105 million quail. God doesn't just provide in dramatic fashion. God provides in dramatic proportion. And Moses could never have anticipated the answer to this prayer. It was unpredictable. It was unprecedented. And Moses had the guts to circle the promise anyway. And when, the cir- when, you, when you circle the promise, you never know how God may provide. But it's always cloudy with the chance of quail. So let me ask you, is there a promise in your life that you need to circle? Maybe you need to circle a promise for your marriage right now. Maybe it's on the rocks. Maybe it's on edge. Maybe it's time to start circling a promise. Maybe it's, maybe it's a promise of your children. Maybe you need to circle a promise for this stage that you find yourself in in your life right here, right now. Maybe you need to circle a promise for a fear that you're facing or for a dream that you're pursuing. But I need you to know that before this quail storm appeared on the Doppler radar, God asked Moses a very important question. It's not just a question, it is the question. And it's a question that we need to have an answer for as well. You see, your question to the question will determine the size of your prayers. And that question comes in Numbers chapter 11 and verse 23. When God asks Moses, when he's wondering, how in the world is this all going to work out? How is this going to happen? How is this even possible? God responds to him with those four words. Five words. told you I'm not a math guy. Is the Lord's hand shortened? What a question. It is the question. And what God is saying to Moses is, really? (laughs) Are you doubting me? Is there any limit to my power, Moses? And the obvious answer to that question is no. No, God is omnipotent, which means by definition, there is nothing that God cannot do that's outside of his character. Yet many of us pray as if our biggest problems are bigger than God. And so let me remind you of this high-octane truth that should fuel your faith. God is infinitely bigger than your biggest problem, and He's infinitely bigger than your biggest dream. And while we're on the topic, let me just say this. His grace is infinitely bigger than your worst sin, too. It is. It is. That is the God we serve. We've mentioned this before. Let me say it here again. I love A.W. Tozer. I don't know if you've ever read him. He's an incredible scholar and author, and he believed that it was a low view of God that caused hundreds of lesser evils in our lives. But it was a high view of God that was the solution to tens of thousands of temporal problems that you and I face. And if he's right, and I believe that he is, then your biggest problem isn't an impending divorce. Your biggest problem isn't a failing business or a doctor's diagnosis. Now, please don't misunderstand. 
I'm not making light of those relational or financial or health issues. I don't want to minimize anything that you're going through, and I don't want to do that at all. The overwhelming challenges that we all face. But in order to gain a godly perspective on your problems, you have to answer the question, are my problems bigger than God or is God bigger than my problems? Our small view of God is our biggest problem. And it is the cause of thousands of lesser evils in our life. And it's a high view of God that is the solution to those questions and to those problems that we have in our life. Is there any limit to His power? Have you answered the question? The question. Because there really are only two options, right? Either the answer is yes or the answer is no. But until you come to the conviction that God's grace and power know no limits, you're going to keep drawing little tiny prayer circles once you embrace the omnipotence of God, you're going to continue to draw bigger and bigger and larger and larger circles around your God-given, God-sized dreams. So how big is your God? My God is so big. I can't remember the rest. Is He big enough to heal your marriage? Is He big enough to heal your child? Is he bigger than a positive MRI or a negative evaluation? Is he bigger than that secret sin that, got you, that has you? Moses was perplexed by the promise that God had given him. How could God possibly provide meat for a month? It didn't add up. But at a critical juncture, when Moses had to decide whether or not to circle the promise, God posed the question, is there any limit to my power? And the size of your prayers will depend on the size of your God. So how big is your God? And if God knows no limits, then should our prayers? Should our prayers know any limits? I don't think so. I don't think so. God exists outside of this uh, four space-time dimensions that He created Shouldn't we pray as if He exists outside of those dimensions? Shouldn't we pray those bold, life-changing prayers? It reminds me of the man who was sizing up God one day, and he said, God, how long is a million years to you? And God said, oh, a million years, that's like a second to me. And the man says, well, how much is a million dollars to you? And God said, well, a million dollars is like a penny. The man smiled and said, hey, God, could you spare a penny? God smiled and said, sure, just wait a second. With God, there is no big, there is no small, there is no easy or difficult, possible or impossible. And I know that's difficult for us to comprehend because all we've ever known are the four dimensions we were born into, but God is not subject to the natural laws that He instituted. He has no beginning and no end, and so to the infinite, all finites are equal. Even our hardest prayers are easy for the omnipotent one to answer because there is no degree of difficulty with Him. None. If you're like me, you tend to use bigger words for bigger requests. You ever done that? You feel like you've got to pull out the King James Version in order to pray in King James English? <laughs> because God's going to hear that a little bit better than He will just, just normal me, right? So we pull out our best vocabulary. We pull out our biggest words uh, as if God's answer depends upon the correct combination of words. Trust me, 
It doesn't matter how long or how loud you pray. It comes down to the answer to the question, is there any limit to my power? Because when God gives a vision, I believe He makes provision. We just need the courage to step out in faith when God is calling us to get out of the boat. Otherwise, we will forfeit the miracle. We have to believe that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We have to believe that He can send a a miraculous west wind uh, to, to bring 105 million quail into the camp. But we also need to do our part, and our part is taking a step of faith and pursuing the dream that God has put in our hearts. So what step is that for you? What step of faith do you need to take? What decision do you need to make? On what promise do you need to put down a stake? That's a question only you can answer. It's a question only you can answer. But let's let's pray big, audacious, outrageous prayers. Let's test God in this and see if He will not unload the storehouse of heaven on us. Let's, Let's take just, let's just exercise the faith that we have and see what God does with that. Maybe you've got some things like that in your life you need us to pray for. Well, let us circle them with you. Let us pray with you. Let us be here for you. Let us be the hands and feet of Jesus in your life. Maybe your walk of faith needs to begin by obeying the gospel in the first place. Well, I pray that today is the day of salvation for you. If there's anything we can do for you, we want to invite you to come while we stand and we sing this song for your encouragement. Oh, hail the power of God.